So welcome to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. We're your host. I'm Tanner Higgins. I'm Matthew Thompson. And I'm Mason Simmons. And we're gathered here today to talk further about the Gospel of John. I was about to say, gathered here today, man and woman, matrimony, bring into marriage, but we're not going to talk about that because... We're all dudes! We're all dudes. Well, Tanner sounds more like the feminine one. Well, you know, that's true. <laughs> you know, I have the highest of the voice, and right now I've got some allergy gunk in my throat. I promise, I don't got the big old COVID. I just... We might have Well, to. you say that, but have you been tested? So we're talking, about John, so we're, we're talking about John chapter 8. We're talking about John chapter 8? John 8. No, we, well, we take our temperatures before work every day. I have not, I have not been running a fever. I just, been, I, just been, I just got little, little, little danglies in my throat. Have you heard of the, the new saliva test that they're, they're making? It's like a little piece of paper that you just like, you lick it, and it works like a pregnancy test. It shows you a line if what? you're a positive. Uh, oh, I'm sure. Like a litmus test type of thing? Yeah, they they just started uh, manufacturing them like not even a week ago, I think, and they're wanting them to like hit the mainstream. But this is not a medical podcast. It is not a medical podcast. We like to just we we like to study the word of the one true physician, the greatest physician. Ooh. Oh yes, my segues they're on point today. So in John <laughs> chapter eight, where are we going? Well, first off, we're taking a trip to the Mount of Olives. So after. I think this this might be a minimal amount of like useless words that we've thrown in the beginning of the podcast. So let's hit the ground running and get right into scripture. Run, run, run. This might be dangerous. We're on a roll. So starting off with the uh, verses two through eleven, it talks about an interesting uh, dialogue and conversation that some Pharisees bring a woman in front of Jesus. Very famous story. You know, yeah, and, and so this is a kind of a, if someone's been raised in a church their whole life, this is kind of something that we've always heard. But to those that don't know, we'll talk a lot, we'll talk about it. So here, starting in verse 2, you have Jesus teaching in, in the temple. And while he's teaching, some Pharisees and religious rulers bring this woman that they caught in adultery before Jesus. And so while Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees challenge Jesus with a situation. They say, this woman is guilty by being caught in adultery. We need to stone her. And the challenge is, is that these Pharisees are asking Jesus, now what do you say? Yeah, I like that point because if you read it in verse 5, it says, Now Moses, and they, they stress the emphasis of Moses, in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. But then it goes on, but what do you say? So, yeah, mm-hmm. they're trying to challenge Jesus and the his ideas of, you know, what do you, what do you think? We're going to get him right here. You know, there's no way out of it. Because if he says stoner, oh, we're going to have some a violent Jesus? You know, I thought Jesus was trying to teach, you know, all mm-hmm. these other good, peaceful things. But if he says, no, you can let her go, well, then he's, he's agreeing with adultery. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they think they've got him cornered. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of cool because... Jesus is smart enough, and and he doesn't say anything, you know. And, and I I try I try to take regards to that, you know. And it's like you know, I may not do it much, probably never. From last week episode, is sometimes I just need to shut up, <laughs> you know. So there's times that Jesus is is setting a good example. It's like hmm. Let me just sit in silence for a few few minutes and let, let, let's 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 do something else here. And so you're exactly right that he does present in a way. It's like you know, if he responds yes or no, they're going to get him. Mm-hmm. And Jesus sees that right off the gate. Another thing that I get out of uh, them, the Pharisees giving Jesus what they think is like an ultimatum that 
will definitely go in their favor. Uh, they're giving him two options, and they, they think that there's only two options. Mm-hmm. The issue is there is a third option that they're not aware of. And thinking about that right now, it, um, it kind of makes me curious as to what the meaning behind that third option is. Because the, the options they're giving him are confirmed that, that we can stone this woman, you know, according to the law that you said. Ain't that right? You gave it to Moses. Ain't that right, Jesus? Assuming you are this uh, God incarnate that you claim to be. Um, which, again, would, as Seth... Seth. Ugh, man, why, why do I keep calling you Seth? Little Seth. Hmm. Which, as Mason... Sorry, I don't, mean, I don't mean to cuss you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. As Mason pointed out... Um, that would kind of fly in the face of Jesus, like preaching mercy, like preaching love, like that. That would be a, a weird change of character. Jesus doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be the kind of guy that wants to um, endorse stoning this woman, and yet if he says that she's innocent, then I mean, then he's guilty of disobeying the very same law that he gave his people, according mm-hmm. to him. Again, the, the yeah. Pharisees have kind of this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, be like, "Hey, Jesus, if you're really God, then I mean, there's really no way out of the situation." The issue is. There's a third option that they are not aware exists. And Jesus, he addresses that. I I don't know if it's in the book of John, but it's in one of the gospels where he says he's not here to abolish the law. He's here to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Thing is, how how do you fulfill the law? The Mm -hmm. law isn't something that you fulfill, at least not by physical human standards. Like if if you write a law, like no one ever is going to say, oh, there's going to be someone that comes along and fulfills this law so that it's it's not necessary, but also no one's breaking the law because it's been fulfilled. Like that, that's just a concept that flies over human heads. Uh, and that, I mean, that has me thinking right now, like how, what does fulfilling the law mean? Is it kind of like, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a, a human perspective, and I don't know much about constitutional law and stuff like that. Is it kind of like... The Declaration of Independence and all that stuff, but then amendments, the amendments are kind of something that's added over time. It's amended. So is it kind of like how Jesus is like improving upon the law that has been established in that sense? Is that kind of like more of a, a modern observation? Well, I would... I'm not, like I said, I'm not adverse into like legislative law and stuff like that. So with the amendments, because amendments are... Add-ons. Yeah. Add-ons into what the original Constitution I mean, an amendment, placed. by definition, is a change. And yeah. Jesus didn't change the law. He true, true. Okay. Like, those are yeah, two different right. things. You're right. Like, I mean, again, it's just something that flies over a human head. Because a law, by our definition, can't be fulfilled. It is referenced. It is used. Yeah, it's either broken or not broken. Yeah. There is no fulfilling of law within our cultural and human standards. Yeah. So how does that... Fulfilling the law, which this isn't in John, but yeah, how how's yeah. that accomplished? Well, we might have to come back to this in terms of like yeah. what the what the Greek says. This might be a lost in translation sort of thing for Could all be. I know. Because I mean, I'm I'm ignorant towards it right now. Like I'm just kind of throwing it out there because yeah. again, it just came to mind. Uh, but regardless, I mean, seeing as how we can puzzle this out right here with the uh, two thousand plus years of experience we have over the Bible days, Within so twenty sure. something years of <laughs> exactly. life, right? No way we're gonna. So surely the Pharisees were equally puzzled, be like, "Oh, this this whole Jesus being silent and what what's he writing in the ground?" Well, let's get to that. Yeah. So here, here with the two options that the the Pharisees thought they had Jesus at, Jesus, like Matthew said, threw out another option, and he said. He did not say yes or no. He he kept silent, and then he began to write in the sand. And it doesn't say what he wrote. And people have speculated for a long time, what in the world was he writing? And people said, this is exactly what he wrote. I don't know what he wrote. I don't think no one knows what they wrote. You can speculate. But I was reading some commentaries and some uh, uh, scholars and stuff like that, and you can take 
Old Testament stuff and kind of see where you can see a correlation. But some people speculate that Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, uh, that Jesus was writing the names of the Pharisees in the dirt. And I can kind of see because it sounds like throughout the story, as Jesus was writing in the dirt, they were leaving one by one. I, so, I mean, he could be writing one name at a time. And Jesus says something. He says, well, first before he says something, he starts writing the dirt. But Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, it says, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. And so Jesus started writing in the sand, not saying a word. And then what does he, does he ask a question or does he state something? Is it a question? I can't remember. He states it. States it. Yeah, it's a statement. But he says, no, whoever doesn't have sin, cast the first stone. So if they want to stone her... Who is without sin cast the first stone? And it's funny because the only one there that is able to do it is Christ himself. Mm-hmm. You know? And a lot of, I've heard other things mentioned too because like, you know, how you said people, some people speculate that he started writing some of their individual names. Uh, I've heard other preachers and uh, you know scholars say that he might have started writing some of the laws that they might have broken. Could be. Or that he, shame some yeah, of their sins. Yes, yeah, so he was writing down some of the things that they've done. And, uh, and it says, if you read in the next verse, like, or in the next couple of verses, it convicts them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he starts maybe writing things down that they've done, and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I did that. Or it's maybe how they brought up Moses. Maybe it's part of the Ten Commandments. I've heard that, too. Like I said, we don't know, but whatever Jesus did right, it hit them hard. Mm-hmm. So rather than falling into the trap that the Pharisees set for Jesus, and I'm pretty sure if 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 we were in Jesus' shoes, we would fall in the trap. <laughs> I'm just going to point out that we're that we probably would have said yes or no and fumble through the conversation and be stoned upon that and be accused of things. But Jesus played it smart, <clears throat> and he makes a statement, and it's very reminiscent. I, I was uh, in, in these notes that I, that I typed out. It was very reminiscent to Matthew chapter seven verse five, and here Jesus says, "It says he says hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye." then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye, which this adulteress was no friend of the Pharisees. They mm-hmm. didn't care about her. They just wanted to trap Jesus. But yet I can see the, the correlation there that they were more concerned about her breaking the law than probably them breaking the law. And we don't know their sins. We know hers. But I'd say their sins are probably a little bit more greater than hers in the sense of like, well, why are they, why are they put to shame? Because you know they they caught her in one sin, but mm-hmm. when you when you go back and look at the Pharisees, they had the pride, but they also had the hypocrisy, the hypocrites. I mean, right there is two different things, and I'm sure you know you you could probably add up some of the things that they were doing, but you but when you take it and look at how they saw things, they're like, oh wow, you know she's sleeping with another man. It just adds up. So you know here you know here they see a woman who they deem is doing more evil things than they might think they are because, of course, they're full of pride. But then they're also wanting to take down Jesus, of course. Mm -hmm. So here they are, and here comes my dad pun. They're wanting to get two people with one stone. Two birds with one stone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, I mean, in all honesty, you know, the pride in them set up so much that they're trying, they're, of course, trying to get Jesus, but they're trying to take down this woman, too, because Mm -hmm. they don't want to look at themselves. And it's like you said, you got to get out the log in your own eye. They were blind to themselves because they were so full of themselves. 
here's like a preaching point. I was kind of thinking, how many times has Jesus written the sand, written in the sand in front of you, in the sense of putting you to shame? Like he doesn't say anything, but yet when he points out the probably the faults in your life when you're trying to accuse somebody of something, or it's like you see someone in sin and like, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. But then Jesus like writing in the sand in front of you. I can say this from experience. At least half of my sermons wind up coming back to me. And, oh, and hands down. I mean, I, I know a lot of other preachers would agree with that too. And yeah, like I agree. But so many times people think, oh, you're targeting me. No, I'm kind of targeting myself. It just happens to affect you too because we're human, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people's all the time, especially other preachers, and I, I know I'm a young preacher, but I've heard like other ones that's young as well say like, oh, like I don't want to, you know, like step on somebody's toes. Well, you're not the one stepping on people's toes it's jesus it's god you know well god's word will convict yeah it jesus will convict the holy spirit will convict you know mm-hmm. it, it's going to do its job you need to do your job yeah saint augustine anyway. he makes a, a parallelism between god the father on mount sinai so we're bringing old testament stuff writing the ten commandments with his finger on the stone and christ writing in the dirt with his finger and he makes the the, the parallel of only god can judge and the law of god puts people to shame by the view of their sin what what do you think about that about saint augustine saying that i mean i think it's some really cool parallelism i mean I've made it exceedingly clear throughout pretty much every episode of this podcast so far that I, I love when the, the Bible hyperlinks back on itself. And mm-hmm. that, that is a, a line between two dots that I personally never connected before. So I mean, either. Next to your notes here, I just wrote the word nice because <laughs> when I was here, I was like, nice. nice. <laughs> now let's get into some controversy here. And I didn't really know about this until I started studying this chapter a little bit. I think I've heard about it before in the past, but I've never really dived a little bit deep into it. But there's actually some controversy over this event. And did when I, when I sent this, these notes to you, did y'all, did y'all know about this at all? No, it's news to me. Really? Okay. Well, it's obviously it's not something that is uh, contradicting anything of what Jesus did. I mean, this is completely in character with his... Uh, uh, with what he did, but the controversy is to to listeners is that did this event actually happen? And a lot of people was like, well, you take that at first glance, like, wait a minute, hold on a second. But the controversy is that this event does not occur in any of the early Greek manuscripts of John, or it appears in other locations such as John seven, John twenty one, Luke twenty one, and Luke twenty four, and. The Eastern Church Fathers didn't start inscribing this event into John until around 4th century, around the time that the Latin Vulgate started coming into play. And so we've got, you know, 400 years prior or post-event that this starts coming into John chapter 8. And there are some that say that the way that this is written, which I'm, I'm not someone that can speak Greek fluently at all. I can't speak Greek at all. just want to point that out. But... There say there's there's scholars, Christian scholars that agree with this. You know they're Bible believing and they believe in Christ and death and resurrection. That He's the Son of God. Believes in Christ. That say you know the 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 way that some of this is structured, like verb and context and the way that's structured, it's not Johannian in nature. That it's not like mm, this doesn't fit the way that John writes. This kind of fits the way that Luke or Mark or whoever writes. This doesn't fit his kind of structure style. And 
I'm going to quote uh, D.A. Carson. He's a research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He says, The diversity of placement leads to the decision of, of, of authenticity. Even if it is difficult to justify it as Johannian, which it means Johannian is another phrase of John, you know. John-like. John-like. Um, there are expressions and verbs, constructions that are not found in John, but are characteristic to the synoptic gospels, especially Luke. So the debate is, did this happen at a different time? Is this not chronological? And the thing is, though, I mean, you look at the Synoptic Gospels. Like, there, there's sometimes it's like, it's not completely chronological. You know, you see that John the Baptist, uh, well, in Mark, the white so condensed is that Mark, he'll just talk about one person. Like, in John the Baptist, it's all one. He talks about his whole, like, his his ministry, his contact with Jesus, and his death in one topic. Just but you know how like someone says, "Oh, so and so," instead of going chronologically, he's like, "Well, you know, he died," or you know, whatever. He'll he'll just use talk about the whole individual within one sitting instead of chronologically saying about three chapters later, "Oh, and he dies here." So I mean, scripture, even though it's it's um, it's written in a way, certain synoptic gospels are written in a way that some of them are chronological and some are just topical, mm-hmm. I guess, in nature. And so most New Testament scholars believe that this probably didn't occur in John chapter 8 at this time. With all that information, what do y'all think? Does it even matter? Yeah, I wouldn't say it really matters. I mean, each of the, the gospels are written with a purpose. And I don't think the purpose of every one of the Gospels is necessarily to tell the story in order. Mm-hmm. Like, how... I mean, it's like when you do a chronological read-through of the Bible, like, you discover, like, just how hardcore, out of order some of the areas in Scripture yeah. are. But has that affected your walk with God at all? Like, is reading it chronologically necessary? I mean, can you get something out of reading it chronologically? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But... I mean, I don't think that has any bearing on, like, the power of God's Word. Like, it's not like you can, when you're reading God's Word, you have access to spiritual gears one through five. But, shoot, when you do it chronologically, you you find the overdrive, and it's just, it's all fun and games from there. Like that, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, the side of it doesn't really matter that much, personally. Yeah. I'll play a little bit of The Devil's Advocate. The only problem that I can, can kind of see that some critics an atheist would have is like, well, how come it doesn't appear in any of the manuscripts until about the fourth century? I can kind of see that how some people could say, well, I mean, it was just placed in there. It's just a storyline outside of what John and Luke and Mark have written. That's the only thing I could see. But the thing is, though, it, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't think that that uh, hinders the whole gospel message in the sense it could or could not have happened, which most scholars believe that it, it probably did happen. Where in the timeline, we don't know. That, and I mean, just the process through which it took to get the Bible where it is now, like, I mean, I'm personally pretty, and I mean, I'm, again, no Bible scholar, but neither am I a historian or anything like that. I have no professional knowledge No, you are here, a Bible so scholar. Go. Scholars are those that study the Bible. We are Bible, well... Very, very, not even entry level. We are, yeah. we're feasting off the dust. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're sitting outside the the door to the classroom to remedial 
classes with little, little cups. Can you, can you spare some some notes that you took during we've, class? We've got, the, we've got the glass jar against the door, listening yeah. in <laughs> on on the scholars. That's what yeah. we're doing. But anyway, like it was a pretty. I mean, it was a lengthy process to get to where we're at now with scripture. I mean, it wasn't until the 1500s that um, I think Anglicans. It, it was during the Protestant Reformation this, mm-hmm. uh, when we decided, oh, hey, let's uh, get rid of these apocryphal books like the uh, like the Book of Moses, uh, uh, the Wisdom Maccabees. of Solomon, the Maccabees. Mm-hmm. Like the like, it wasn't until the 1500s that we finally got around to like kicking those out of uh, yeah. church study. Which I mean, there's still definitely value in those, but like I'm just saying, like it wasn't until that recently in human history that we got it down to what we're reading today more or less and i mean you also got to keep in mind that i mean the king james bible itself went through a couple iterations before it got to the the glorious og that we have now and i mean then versions and versions after that and i mean hey some modern versions uh even today have like a verse here and there that might have been taken out or or kept just depending on like what manuscripts did the people that translated uh Mm -hmm. utilize to get that version of it so i mean yeah, like I, it, it doesn't send yeah. up any iteration of a red flag to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. I may have to go back and look at this, but the King James version, they only took manuscripts from one location because there's manuscripts from different locations in you know the European European region. You know, there's manuscripts over here, there's manuscripts over here, you know, over here, over here, over here. But the King James, they took it from just one central location and they took the verses and everything within that. But then there's a lot of modern translations that take the manuscripts from a widespread of all locations to try to get the most accurate one. So getting off the topic of controversy, but yet this topic can somewhat still be controversy, but yet Jesus brings up another I am statement. And this kind of permeates through the rest of the book, or permeates through the rest of the chapter of the the phrase I am, but yet we're going to look at a little bit here. So starting in verse 12, uh, Jesus makes a note. He says, Jesus spoke to them again. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus, here's another I am. Statement. He makes, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, I'm the light of the world, light of life. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, uh, in verse 12, he says, the light of life and the light of the world. What do you think he's talking about? Because, I mean, if, if it coming from someone, let's say that someone doesn't know what in the world he's talking about, in extreme layman's terms, what does he refer to? What, what is he referring to? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about sin. Like he wants to, he wants to save his people from sin, and mm-hmm. he's the individual that is having to come down and do the work to make that possible. I think the contrast is interesting between darkness and light, and, and the darkness is living in that sin. And so the question is here: I want to ask y'all, y'all this too: is that can you still remain in darkness even if it's already shown to you that you're in darkness? Because if the light is shining in the dark to remove the dark and you know you're in the dark the truth has been shown to you but you can choose to receive it or not to receive it are you still in the darkness because I'm trying to think of just like this, the the literal aspect of being like in a dark room and a light shining uh-huh. is okay. it is it really light or is it Here, funny dark? enough I actually preached a sermon over this last week preach or, son. or two weeks ago I don't know I'll get my times mixed up anyway um, if you go back and look at Psalm 139 it's uh, David talking about search me, O God. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I like to bring up the reference because I heard I heard this from uh, another. Uh, well, he was an evangelist, now a pastor, uh, Wesley Campbell, one of my favorites. Um, what he preached was uh, at a church camp a couple years ago, and he's like, he made the correlation of uh, up in his attic. You know, he's it's dark. There's no light up there, and he's trying to look for something. But you can't look for things if you can't see, because I mean, you can't find it if you can't see it. Well, long story short, he needed a flashlight to find it. The having God search our hearts is like a dark room. We're not going to be able to do it because we're too we're, like the Pharisees were to their sins. We're blind to ours. We we don't know because we can't see it. So we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God to search our darkness. And what that does is it's going to shine that light into our hearts and into our, like it's going to expose our inner sin. But Here's the thing about it, though. Are you actually going to do anything about it? Are you actually mm-hmm. going to try to correct those? Or are you just going to sit in that dark place? Or are you just going to let all of that sit and build up? That's good. So, I mean, it's... Yes, I think that you actually... if You can have light exposed to the darkness, but if you don't leave, once the light turns off, you're back in that dark spot. Mm-hmm. So, I like to think of it... The, the dark exists where there is no light. Right, so you need to go to the light, and once that light has shined in and, and exposed it, there needs to be some housekeeping done. There needs to be some cleaning up, because otherwise, that light's going to fade back mm-hmm. out. I guess another analogy is what Jesus says in Revelation. He says, "You know, I stand at the door and knock." You know, Jesus is continually knocking and stuff like that. And there might be sometimes you may be in the shower and you may not hear it knock. Mm-hmm. And you may be so deep into the house, so deep into darkness, and so deep into sin that you may not hear that knock. And But yet you're going to hear it eventually. You come out of that shower a little bit. Maybe you want to know a little bit about you're faced with a tragedy in your life. And you start asking little questions, these question, hard questions about life. What is reality? You're stepping out of the shower a little bit, and you hear that knocking on your heart. And I guess that's the same thing. You can acknowledge that. It's like, okay, there's something here that I, I have to acknowledge it or not acknowledge it. And so accepting that light is the same thing of like accepting to open the door. And that kind of goes like Isaiah 58 verse 8. Uh, the start of that says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like, that's a, that's beautiful to say, you know, that your light, the light of Christ is to bring fulfillment and to bring life. And like in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, you know, the beginning of creation. You know, light brings life. And that's what Christ is really getting at here in the sense of like I've come to bring life in the midst of darkness and then within that I have this in my notes too is that through the through God's word in Psalm 119 verse 105 your word is a lamp unto my feet into my feet and a light into my path and so in his, in his words I will hide in my heart that I might not sin against God and sin is darkness and the light of God is righteousness holiness and hope and life within that I think that's beautiful. Yeah, you think it's beautiful, but the Pharisees didn't like it too well. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. True. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty uh, offensive statement to them. Uh, they say in in verse thirteen when they're talking to Jesus, they say, "You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true." And that's uh, when when I was reading this initially, like 
I read that verse and it was just like, oh, typical Pharisees being uh, killjoys as always. But evidently, like, it was a thing, like, within their, their law, like, the way that they treated witnesses, that, like, you had to have X amount of people present to, like, say these things. And since Jesus was just bearing witness mm-hmm. uh, about himself with no one present to back him up, like, that they had, like, this legal precedent to be like, oh, well, everything you just said is hogwash because you, you're not following uh, this concept. And then Jesus fires back. Uh, in verse 14, he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Mm-hmm. And then he goes further, like, explaining, and this is kind of what opened my eyes, like, oh, this is what happened in that verse before. Uh, Verse 17 says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So, again, Jesus drawing on that that authority that he has under the Father, uh, which kind of takes me back um, to the initial uh, scripture within this, this chapter that we read, where, again, it's the Pharisees not not getting what it really means that Jesus is the son of God. Like mm-hmm. there, there is an authority here that is being slowly revealed through scripture. It's almost like John's goal when he wrote this, this, this book was to reveal what it meant yeah. that, that Jesus is the son of God. So I that, don't know. Sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. I, I don't know how this is in y'all's. I want you to look at it real quick. Cause if it's just a translation thing or not, but I find it really, if it is like this and I'll look at verse 18, how is one spelled? With a capital O or lowercase? Lowercase. Lowercase? I'm in ESV. 18? Yeah. Lowercase for me. I am one. Okay, see, I'm in the New King James, and it has one in capital for me, the capital O. And I, I, liked, I, I like that. I, I, like, I like it, like too, that. just because it's like, I'm one. The Father is two. There's your two that you need. You know, because it says... You, you, it's showing a Trinitarian view. Yeah, and but it's also upholding their law that they were trying to say that he was breaking. Like, oh, you mm-hmm. must bear two witnesses. So he's like, well, I'm one. The father is two, and we'll get into the father a little bit yeah. later in second verse uh, and later on verses. But I don't care. I just wanted to know if that was uh, like one thing, because if if not, I was. I still like it either way. I, I, I like that because. Kind of going back, uh, the, the the term testimony in verse in verses thirteen and fourteen. I want to point this out because I think this is this is kind of amazing when it comes to Jesus' death and resurrection. Is that the word testimony? They said, you know, you bear false witness. Basically, they're saying you bear false witness against yourself. You know, your testimony sucks. You know, you're a liar. <laughs> and, but Jesus, is like, no, 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 no. That's not that's not the case. But the word testimony, the Greek for that is martera. In other words, it's testimony, witness, record, and report. And that's where we get our word martyr from, you know. And, you know, we, we see the word martyr, and that's someone that's, that dies for Christ. And you ask any Christian, and I would say even non-Christian, you say someone that dies for the name of Christ is bearing a good testimony for the Lord. And it says, I'm, I'm willing to die for what I believe in. That's a good witness, you know. Even though it doesn't make logical sense, that's a good witness. And so Jesus, he says, you know, I have this testimony, and I, I, I like that so much because it's only Christ can give a true witness of the Father, and the Father can only is one that can give a true witness to Christ mm-hmm. through the death and resurrection, the testimony of His death, Christ's death, and the testimony of His resurrection is what gives 
Christ levity and gives him, you know, the ability to say what he says because he is the Son of God. And that's seen through his self-sacrifice and his death and resurrection. So I think that's powerful for sure. And we get some more uh, hilarious misunderstanding of, of Jesus' words. And just to, to round out that bit of scripture, uh, in verse 19, the Pharisees, when they respond to all this that Jesus said, uh, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Father, assuming like a, a physical father, like an actual like witness to, to bear this testimony. Um, again, just characterizing that misunderstanding there. And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So again, drawing that, that line, be like, buddy, you still don't get it. The, the father will get there eventually, bud. <laughs> I wonder, I, I think back to, is this back when he, like, almost like a reminiscent of like when he was 12 years old, was like, where's your dad at? Like, <laughs> oh, come on, Jesus, where's your dad? I mean, where is he at? And it's just like, you should know him, <laughs> you know? I mean, that, that is interesting. To yeah. me, I, just, I can just see someone who's like, dude, what are you talking about? Where's your dad, you know? When can get you in trouble here. Yeah, and I'd like to read a little bit further down because there's another absolutely hilarious misunderstanding on the Pharisees' part. Mm -hmm. uh, just another verse down in verse 21. Uh, Jesus says again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, <laughs> where am I going, you cannot come? Like, what... What a conclusion to draw from that. Like, we, I know we've gotten a lot of funny misunderstandings from the people around Jesus so far, but that, that one was the most out of left field that I've read so far. <laughs> well, this was all brought up in the last chapter, too. This yeah. same statement of Jesus saying, where I go, you cannot come. And I, do, don't they ask the same question of, isn't he going to kill himself in the same Well, no, they just straight up ask, like, where, where is he going to go? Like, yeah, okay. they're just like, where okay, is, where is he going to go? But now they're taking him just a step further and <laughs> absurdity. Like, himself? is he gonna kill himself? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's it's so funny because like Jesus, he he's making it to me. I mean, this, this is also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's w within me. He reveals stuff. But yet, I to me, it's clear as day that Jesus is acknowledging himself to be the Son of God. I mean, it's pretty clear that Jesus is making certain claims of like, this is who I am. And they keep on asking and just, con just to me, they're either confused, ignorant, or just want to deny all the gear together, want to remain in the dark and remain in the darkness. They refuse to acknowledge the truth. Or all the above. Or all because, the above. Because, I mean, Jesus, interestingly enough, he gives a genuine answer to that question mm -hmm. of like, are, are you going to kill yourself? <laughs> so in verse um, 23... He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So that, I mean, that's just beautiful to me because mm -hmm. when reading that scripture, them asking if he's going to kill himself like that, just if, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I wouldn't answer like that. It, it would be either a lot of laughter and some name calling or just a... A big sigh and uh, leave these hopeless people that will never understand. But no, he gives them an honest answer. Like he gives them an answer. That's, it's going to fly right over their heads, of course. But if Jesus had a whiteboard, there would yeah. be there would be dots and things driven everywhere. It's like you're from below. I'm from above. I've come down so that I can save you from your sins and death. And then it's so funny. He explains it so so plainly to me. But then in verse 25, they're like. Who are you? <laughs> they ask the questions like, who are you? Who, who even are you? And sassy Jesus again comes again. He comes in and he says, haven't you been listening? <laughs> Just as I said from the beginning. Like, Listen, 
like just read just listen to me yeah like due to the punctuation and wording here like here in the esv that i'm reading jesus responds by saying just what i've been telling you from the beginning and like it just reads so calmly and like mm-hmm. i really want to believe that jesus just delivered that with just deadpan delivery they're like wait who are you oh you know just what i've been telling you since literally the start of my ministry like are yeah. you just come on catch up bud yeah <laughs> which I would say that Jesus probably got frustrated, but yet he didn't allow that frustration allow him to sin. Obviously, he's sinless. Yeah. But, I mean, to me, I would get so frustrated, which, I mean, I would think that with us, you know, with our sin as well, that he probably gets a little frustrated with us. Even though yeah. his grace and his mercy is endless, I mean. Yeah, and I mean, you got to think about where that frustration is coming from. Like, he's going to die for those people that mm-hmm. like are struggling to understand who he is when he or is, don't want to he's understand, spelling yeah. it out. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're, I mean, goodness, there is an incredible amount of frustration behind that. I mean, mm-hmm. just knowing what your plan is as, as being Jesus and knowing that not only are there going to be tons of people that like reject it, but these people here can't even be force fed the information. Question. Pesky free will. Where is, is it Paul that says, don't cast your pearls before the swine? Is it Paul that says that, or, is it, or Solomon know. say it in Proverbs? It sounds very Proverbish yeah, to me. Say that sounds like Solomon. Either or, either or, you know, the, the term, don't cast your pearls before the swine, is like, don't cast the good stuff before before people that's going to eat the slop. And Jesus is out here casting diamonds. Well, and, and the thing is, I was like, well, if that's the case, then what's the purpose of Jesus talking to people that probably don't want to understand? Matthew. Matthew says it? Matthew 7, 6. So it's in Matthew. So it's just like, so what was the purpose here? If Jesus is basically casting diamonds before the Pharisees, which I wouldn't say all the Pharisees because Nicodemus is still within this because last chapter Nicodemus was within that. So I'd say there are some. Yeah. I'd say, what was it? I mean, we made the comment is like those that are really against Jesus are more vocal and those that are kind of with Jesus are kind of like less vocal. And so he's probably speaking the ones that are listening because I mean, there's people that still follow Jesus within yeah. this context. And I was, I was actually going to bring that up. Like, I wonder in all these situations where like the Pharisees are trying to have gotcha moments with Jesus, and he just smacks them down. Like, there's got to be some people like in the crowd. They're like, Oh yeah, dude, that's nuts. This Jesus dude, that's that's weird. Who is this Jesus guy? Well, it, I mean, I'm not adverse into like Jewish tradition stuff like that. But it, I mean, with the synagogue and the temple, it's not just like a closed room. I mean, there are closed rooms, but yeah, it's like an openness it's, of a community of like. So there's people that are coming in there and probably listening to him teach. Almost kind of like at a fairgrounds, like yeah, when yeah, you yeah. have like the open venues and stuff, like where people would come in and you would have them gather around and stuff. I, I like to think of it like that instead of like a domed area, you know, you got the temple shape you, where you walk up to it and step down to it. That's how I like to think of it because, mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at all the, the historical pictures and paintings and stuff, literally all of them have it like that as open areas. Now, of course, like you said, there are closed rooms, you could say, but uh, for the most part, yeah, you're right. It's and it's like an open community almost. Yeah. Well, when we, were, when, we, when we went to Israel... We went to a, 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 a replica of a first century synagogue, and they were basically saying, you know, this is basically their community center. You know, they met here, they worshiped here. And so same thing with the temple is that they worshiped there, and it was a community center of a gathering. And so I would assume this was kind of like the same ordeals that people listening that were not, you know, Pharisees and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, 
I, I, would, I would tend to agree that there are people listening and lives being changed due to this, but yet the Pharisees are the ones that are loudmouth and arrogant. You know, it's funny that we talk about this because it actually does say in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Scripture proves her point here. Uh, or no, We promised my, we studied my, this beforehand. <laughs> Yeah, our point our point is made by scripture. Yeah, yeah, there we go. But I mean, in all honesty, like there's that makes me think there's got to be all these different times where some people like a seed is planted, and then several weeks later they they hear about uh, Jesus being crucified. They're like, oh, hey, that's that's that guy that I heard mm-hmm. that one time, right? And then a few more days later, they start hearing these weird rumors that wait, this guy he he came back. the The tomb was empty. And they're like, shoot, there was something to what he was saying. <laughs> So let me, let me ask you this. So in verse 28, Jesus said unto them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me. And I say these things. So Jesus is aligning His will with the Father. He's predicting His death here. Am I not mistaken? When you lift up the Son of Man? I would say that's more of a foreshadow than a prediction. I mean, he's, he's, he's basically telling them. Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, that, that kind of I mean, he forward. knows what's about to yeah, happen. That's why I would say a foreshadow. I, 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 a prediction, I think, or at least I would have to, I'd look. have to look it up. But I think I thought a prediction was a guess. Well, yeah, I guess a prediction could lead yeah, to right. for error. Who is prophecy? <laughs> he, he's prophesying about himself here. Yeah, that's so, more accurate. But, I mean, he, he's basically, and it's, it's interesting. Throughout Scripture, he refers to himself more to the Son of Man than the Son of God. Have you noticed that? That he calls himself more the son of man than the son of God. Yeah, which that's, and I think that we talked about this in the very first episode of this uh, deep dive when we were talking about like the the seven names that that Jesus Mm -hmm. gets described by. And the son of man is a weird one because this, I'm working off of limited memory here, but from what I remember when studying that name, it's never really used in a positive light in Scripture. Whenever, we continue. Whenever the phrase "son of man" is used, it's almost always like in a negative light. Like the the son of man is a sinful being, like that sort of stuff. So Tanner, you've got a smirk and a Bible page in your hand. Well, so. this is actually from last Sunday from uh, Sunday school. Oh, and well. so this is referring to, and I think that when Jesus is referring to him the son of man, people are echoing back to Daniel chapter seven. And Daniel chapter seven, it's very prophetic, and I won't go into detail. But Jesus, but here Daniel he says in verse thirteen, I continue watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. And this kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's a son of man being prophesied as. As, as something good, and well, if you go back to Daniel, what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they saw the there was fourth one image? of the Son of Man. He said he is like the Son of Man, yeah, and and he said it was a good thing because he said like that is the living God. Are we sure? I, I pause. I, I just, I just want to make sure because I was like, wait a minute, are we sure? I'm, I, yeah, I think you're right. because Nebuchadnezzar right, goes sure. to say how they worship a living God. So I mean, I would just, I don't see how that's anything but good. <laughs> I just want to double, double check. Uh, no, it doesn't. It says lightning to the Son of God. Does it say Son of God? It says Son of God. Oh, well then, I stand corrected. I was wrong. I knew it said Son of something, but I thought it said Son of... Yeah, I, yeah you're right. 
What chapter was that, by the way? Uh, it was early, three. Yeah. Yeah, three. The title Son of Man is a Messianic title. So there has been different Son of Mans in the sense of Messiahs throughout history. Because Moses, he was a type of Messiah type. He was a Messiah type, correct? David was a Messiah type. Solomon was a Messiah type. Melchizedek was a Messiah type for the people of Israel. They failed every time, but Jesus is still a Messiah type, which he is the Messiah. But he is someone that has fulfilled what the other Messiah types have failed to do. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man, he's two things. He's acknowledging that I'm just like you, I'm, I'm, that I've come to serve and not come to be served upon. And two, he's saying that I'm the redeemer through my humility. And so he's showing that I've come to reign through my humility. And I would like to clarify, um, I believe that I'm misremembering my studies because I'm looking up some of my old bookmarks and like none of them are coming up negative on what a on what son of man means. Like uh, it's oftentimes used in the Old Testament just to refer to someone who has a certain uh, relationship with God. So if anything, it's regularly used in a positive light. Uh, and also, fun fact that uh, I got from my bookmarks, uh, Son of Man if, is referenced 107 times in the Old Testament. So there's your trivia for That's the day. quite a bit. I'll, I'll say this and we'll move on, but Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it makes this statement. And this is Jesus speaking. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a quote from Jesus calling him the Son of Man again. But he says... I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so when he's saying that I'm, when you lift up the son of man, he's basically saying, you know, when I'm going to die, when you kill me, when you kill the Messiah, then you will know that I am the son of God. Which, I mean, yeah, because the veil was torn. Yeah. Spoilers. (laughs) But but yeah, that's made uh, pretty clear there. Yep. Uh, also, before we transition into the next bit of scripture, uh, whenever I think of that, um, that scripture says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. I think of a, a picture that I saw many, many moons ago that is an, like an edited, like old school looking like tapestry type picture of like this um, gathering and Jesus is there, but Jesus is like in the middle of break dancing. It's like, what? for I did not come to be served. But to serve, <laughs> oh, like showing up at Disney, yeah. I'm serving you, bro. So yeah, that that mental image pops up anytime I hear that. I have that to, I have to look that up. It makes me crack up. So the next uh, block of scripture uh, consists of verses, let's see, thirty-one through thirty-six, I believe. Yes, and so this is a very good uh, conversation over you know being enslaved to sin. Uh, so verses thirty-one through thirty-two, it says, "Then Jesus said to the Jews." who had believed him. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I think Matthew, you made the comment says you did. You thought this was kind of like one of those Christianisms that probably people make up saying that's scripture, but in reality it's not. But yet here you go. Here it is. It didn't ever even clicked that that was like a, a scriptural reference. Cause I hear people say the truth will set you free is basically just like a way to get kids to admit they stole a cookie from the cookie jar because they're tired of hearing all the lies. Like, listen here, little Jimmy, the truth will set you free. Like that's just <laughs> a phrase that people use, but no, not only is it in scripture, but it's taken horrendously out of context. Do you think Jesus felt like Jack Nicholson and saying, you, you can't handle the truth. No, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, they, they couldn't, I mean, it was very self-evident, True. but yeah, just that being taken out of context. Cause I've always heard that phrase just used to, I mean, 
when you know someone's lying and you want to get them to like tell the truth or, mm-hmm. or if you want something, someone to admit something with their stand silent, like, Oh, the truth will set you free. Like trying to give you this little lovey dovey feeling of, Oh, you'll feel better when you hear the truth. When the context in scripture here is knowing the truth of like who Jesus is, mm-hmm. of knowing that he's a son of God, because he's talking to the Jews that have believed in him. Like the, the Pharisees are out of the picture at this point. So he's saying, if you abide my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth. And that is what's going to set you free. So this isn't the truth of like them saying, oh, well, this morning I did this, 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 and this. And that's the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. No, this this is a truth that goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. Like it's an entirely different concept. And so uh, to kind of give a little bit further, to kind of give you insight, and I'm going to point out that what they are enslaved to, verse 34, Jesus says, you know, you're enslaved to sin. You know, sin is what enslaves you. But I wanted to bring that pretext before we get into the conversations of well, how did the fair, how did the the Jews respond? I want to give a little pretext of how the Jews respond. Uh, so sin is what enslaves us, obviously. But the Jews, I think it's so funny of how they responded to me. It, to me, I just kind of give it a little bit because it's like, uh, I guess you don't know the truth. But they they when Jesus says, you know, the truth will set you free. They say, we're descendants of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that you will set us free? And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You were enslaved, guys. <laughs> I mean, the, the Egyptians, you were enslaved. That's what happened. You were put in bondage. Yeah. I'm, I mean, of course, there's no way to know this for sure. But it makes me wonder if this particular group of people that Jesus was talking to are just kind of like better off than your average Jew. Like if they don't feel oppressed and therefore language that um, lends itself to an oppressed people isn't landing with them. Like maybe they've got relatives that are, that are poor and uh, oppressed by like the Roman government, for instance. Uh, but they themselves, maybe they managed to make a pretty good living for themselves and they've got the, the house on the good edge of the block and they're not really experiencing any of this uh, discrimination or anything like that. And like, it just doesn't land with them. They're like, well, I mean, we're aware that slavery occurred, but I mean, that's not really us. Like, do we, what is there to free us of? Like, life, life's pretty good, which I mean, I mean, that kind of holds true today. Like, if you're not personally feeling like a hardship, it's difficult to feel for other people that are having hardship, like empathy. Like, these, there's a lack of empathy going on here, it seems. But every year, they're reminded within the, uh, well, different feasts and such. Passover. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, they're reminded of the slavery of Passover every time, every year. Well, so they know the concept that they were enslaved. So why would they say that we never were enslaved? Well, we don't know their their individual story. I mean, you never know. Maybe their parents were slackers. Maybe they didn't pay attention. They're in the temple. So plenty of people well, don't pay well, attention to scripture. How many? To church. Yeah, how many people? Yeah, exactly right. How many people come to church? <laughs> yeah. And like, oh, you must know the story. You must be Christian. Not always. So you may be right. They may not know the the scriptures. Yeah, I mean these these could be some slackers that come from a family of slackers when it comes to scriptural understanding, and maybe they got a nice little chunk of change that they inherited from daddy, and they just they don't know any hard times. They're like, Jesus, you're offering us freedom from slavery, but what's there to free us from? Like, cool talk and all, but like, what what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. Which. I saw this comment in one of the commentaries, and I thought it was interesting, is that their reaction 
isn't, well, this is great news. You've come to free us from our sins. It's more of, nah, we're good. We don't need this. And yeah. so it's just like, that's kind of the reaction that I, I kind of see here. And Jesus is like, I'm coming to set you free. But they're thinking, well, we're not, we're good. But then yeah. it's like, wait a minute. You got the Romans looking down upon you right now. You're being oppressed right now by the Roman government. But that's good oppression. Oh, that's good oppression. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which but, that, that makes me think of like the, the depressing, depressing statistics out there that like uh, in countries that have like a super small like Christian presence, uh, it typically scales with like the overall wealth of a country. Like the more the more rich and prosperous uh, a country or area is in terms of like material wealth, like the less that Christianity takes a foothold there because real Christianity. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, because I mean, if you don't really have to have hope, you don't tend to go towards hope. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. like people don't seek that out. Whereas you have countries such as like uh, in China and Haiti, like China, where it's illegal, like there's a booming Christian scene over there because I mean that that's all the hope that you yeah, that you can Korea have. As well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, that, that correlation is true back in Bible days. I think uh, R.C. Ryle, he makes a comment. He says, the power of self-deception in the unconverted man is infinite. And, you know, because they don't want to see the truth, they don't want to know the light. They're deceiving themselves of saying, I'm okay to being in this bondage. And Jesus is so desperately trying to break the bondage of sin in these people. But yet they'd rather remain in chains than, and then, and then to see the truth. It's kind of one of those things, it's like, you know, close your eyes, you, you, you won't, it's not really happening if you close your eyes, you know, which is like, wait a minute, if you're closing your eyes, and you got chains around your ankles, does that mean that you don't have chains around your ankles? No, you still got chains around your ankles, you, you refuse to acknowledge it. And Jesus is trying to remove the, the cascade around the, the face, yeah. around the hearts. And I mean, Jesus doesn't pull his punches, I mean, he calls them out for, for what they say. I mean, in verse 37, Jesus responds to these people saying, I know that you, are offsprings, uh, that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So there, man, there's some multi-layer accusation there. And when mm-hmm. you're accused by Jesus, it's pretty safe to say that you're guilty. Because, uh, I mean, for one, like he's pointing out, like, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So what that what that tells me, and feel free to correct me if I'm reading this wrong, but, I mean, that's a you're either with me or against me sort of statement. Like saying, if, if you are if you don't believe in me, if you're not willing to take this this uh, this mercy that I, that I want to give you, then, I mean, you're basically, you're putting me on that cross. Like, you're either with me or against me. There, there is no lukewarm Christian, one mm-hmm. could say. I was, I was about to say that kind of that reminds me back to what Jesus said in Revelation. Yeah, and then he takes a step further in verse 38. Like, there's this difference between father and father. When he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, uppercase F, and you do what you have heard from your father, lowercase F. And I believe it goes uh, even further from that, um, not too many more verses down where he talks about how the father is the devil, like that comparison mm-hmm. is made. And I think we're about to get to that. Yeah. And, and, and that's where he's saying, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely throwing a punch here. He's, he's challenging their moral character by saying that. He says in verse, you know, it was 39 through 42, he points out that, that they prove themselves to be unlike their father Abraham. And he's saying that, you know, Abraham saw this day coming. You know, he knew that I was going to come. And the Pharisees are Abraham's descendants genetically, 
but yet not in a spiritual sense. You know, they're saying, oh, yeah, you're, you're Abraham's father. You know, father's your Abraham. You know, that old classic Father Abraham had many sons. I, I don't like that song because I get mad. <laughs> I hate it. Because you're throwing arms and legs and, you know, you're going to end up hurting yourself or hurting somebody else. It's dangerous. But anyways. Mosh pits for Jesus, man. <clears throat> True. I mean, there was mosh pits back in, <laughs> back in uh, first century Israel. There you go. And then they go even further uh, when he calls them out. I mean, they double down on their ignorance or malice. I don't whatever it is that they're coming from. Uh, they said to him in verse forty-one, "We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God." And then Jesus, without missing a beat, he says uh, in response to that, "If God were your Father, you would love me, <laughs> for I came from God and I am here." I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. There's that comparison. Mm -hmm. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Whew! A little hot in here. He's basically saying, y'all say y'all follow my father, but y'all suck and follow the father from below. Mm. Well, and I say father from below because I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis because the, or of screw tape letters. Screw, yeah. <laughs> screw tape letters. And that's what they call, the de the demons call their father from below. But it's, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's like, y'all worship the devil. <laughs> y'all are doing devilish things. Y'all want to kill the son of God, God himself incarnate. And y'all don't want to do what what you say you want to do. Bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. And I like that there's a, there's a little battle of logic going on there because I'm trying to... Uh, I'm trying to hear what Jesus is saying through the ears of those people that don't understand. I like, I like to try to put myself in their sandals yeah. and see what it's like. And when it comes down to it, your ability to believe what Jesus is saying hinges on, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Which, I mean, let's be completely honest here. Jesus is in a position where he's got to do some marketing. He has to do some convincing. I mean, even though like, um, the Old Testament does set this stuff up, and if people really genuinely wanted to like understand what Scripture said, like they they could put the pieces together themselves. But Jesus does understand that he do, he is going to have to give some helpful shoves in the right direction. I mean, that, mm -hmm. I mean that's what he's been doing so far in this chapter. Um, so I try to sit here and think like, okay, if that's the only argument that Jesus is presenting, I can understand how some people wouldn't understand. Yeah, but then it goes a step further. Because Jesus goes beyond, you need to believe me because the Father sent me in the story. No, he goes a step further to be like, I sense malice. There is, there is a lack of love in you. There is an overwhelming darkness within you. Because not only are you not believing me, there, there's a reason behind that. The reason is because you're not worshiping the Father, uppercase F. You're worshiping, well, the Father from below, as you said, and as our boy C.S. Lewis said. Like he he's accurately calling them out. Like he's he's not only taking what they said and like throwing it back at them accurately. He's reading their hearts and he's he's letting it out to dry. He's putting it all out there so they know. Oh, oh, this guy. No, that was more than a lucky guess. This guy knows this a little too much. What's what's going on here? What's going on? Do you think that's why he why they said? Do you have a demon? 
Because they were trying to shove blame away from themselves. Because yeah. I'd say they got demons working within their midst. There's a lot of projection going on in yeah. this chapter. When I mean, starting from the, the Pharisees wanting to throw the stones at that woman, like wanting to point out the splinter in someone's eye when you have the log in there. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a lot of projection. That seems to be the theme of this chapter so yeah. far when uh, it comes to people that Jesus is encountering. So even the distinction between when Jesus says, you know, that I've come to do the will of my father, capital F, but you do the will of your father, lowercase f. I think, you know, father from below is a good statement, but yet then I think they're also living off tradition in the sense of like Abraham. You're doing what? You're following Abraham, lowercase f, instead of following my father, uppercase f. So it's kind of the same aspect of like, um, we have all these different things of, you know, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius and on all these things of people like people end up following the person that has brought the message versus the per then what the message is actually about. Other than Jesus, we, we worship Jesus. But I'm talking about like people end up worshiping preachers and ministers over what the message they're actually trying to bring. And that can be a problem. And I think they kind of got caught in this problem too, is that they were worshiping more of the tradition of Abraham and being caught up in that aspect. And instead of what the message and the redemptive story that Abraham and his descendants was bringing, you know, you know what I mean? And so it's funny that Jesus saw that. He says, he, he, he says that Jesus shows his equality with God by his omniscience and omnipresence by saying that he knows Abraham. He makes that comment. What verse is that he says that he, that he knew Abraham? It says like verse 58 near the end of the, the chapter. Um, and before we get to that, like you okay. have him being accused of being a demon by, by these Jews. Uh, in verse 49, he responds, says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And he delivers a little more verbal smackdown. And uh, these people respond again out of ignorance. And still there's, there seems to be a maliceful edge there. Like the, these guys, it's, again, it seems that they don't want to believe uh, because they respond. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So Jesus answers, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Mm -hmm. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews respond the last time. Uh, They say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Well, he makes that statement. He, I think he's he even before that where he says um, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day come. Yeah. I was basically saying it's like, so the acknowledgement of him coming, Abraham knew about that. Yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's funny. It's like, dude, you're not even 50 yet. How do you know? Like, we haven't even met Abraham. He lived hundreds of years ago. How do you know Abraham? And he makes, and we wanna, we're going to get a little, just a little bit into the another I am statement. Um, he, he makes that powerful just two phrase before Abraham was. He says, "I am." And don't you love that? That because um, the little English factoid in there says, "Before Abraham was, I am." 
it's not before Abraham was, I was. That's implying that, that God's like tied down to a, to a certain area of time. Like, no, he, he always is. Mm-hmm. And this statement brought to you by Eternal Now. So what do you, what do you think, Mason? Like, why, why do you think he used the term I am instead of like I was? Like, I was there in the beginning. Cause well, I mean, I'm about to bring up something really big as long as I'm not wrong again. <laughs> I'm double checking all my things. Got this. Yeah. You remember how they brought up Moses at the beginning of the chapter? Oh, yeah. Well, let's go back to Moses' time in the burning bush. <gasps> who does God say, tell them who sent me? Who, When Moses is asking God who sent me, I am. Can't be. <laughs> no. So, I mean, I, I don't think you can have more of a better reference there. But, I mean, just to think to say, you know, I am. What does I am mean? Well, I am the light, as he said. I am the life. I am the one that can overcome death. You know, he is and will forever be you know there was no past tense i was you know abraham was Mm -hmm. moses was but jesus is and still is today so it's like that i am has what the the precedence of still going on and Mm -hmm. well it's going to continue to go on yeah i really like that tie back to moses though because you know they tried to bring it up to him and I, I, it's not recorded, so I might be talking a little bit out of my butt right here. But I would like to think that some of them, that clicked with some of them as well. Oh, for sure. To go back and remember in Exodus or the Torah, whatever they called it back then, of, oh, that God said that to Moses. I am. You know, who, sent, who do I tell him who sent me? You tell him I am sent you. Let me read two uh, verses uh other verses other than Exodus chapter three, which that's exactly, you're exactly that's that's a statement that he made. I am, but uh, I looked up two verses that proves that when he says I am, that he's making a divine claim of being equal with Yahweh, God the Father. So the first one is Isaiah chapter forty three verse ten. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so that's a divine claim of saying, I am. I am he. The second one is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so here, here's another statement of divinity, of the statement of I am. And so this is a, a prevalent thing that, the, that the, the Jews, they know. This statement is a declaration of divinity. And so that's a very important, important distinction that we need to make, that Jesus is saying, I am divine. I am the Son of God. Yeah, and... Hold there on. being, and there being so much uh, biblical power behind that statement, it being clear that like Jesus, he's, I mean, he's on a roll throughout this entire chapter, uh, proving that he is Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and it seems that even in this situation where these people were just determined, it seemed hell bent on not believing, Jesus finally took it one step too far. Like it's impossible for them to stop acknowledging their shortcomings and the sinfulness that they're in. So in verse 59, to close out the chapter and this discussion, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this chapter. Stones are being picked up again. Ooh. Oh, I didn't, I didn't catch that. That's good. Yeah. 
Verse 59 reads, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So as this, this chapter began, so it ends with people that have no right to be picking up stones, picking up stones. And it's funny, too, because, like, what do you pick up stones for? To stone someone because of their blasphemy, because they claim to be God. And I noted it here in the notes is that they picked up stones because I think this is this shows that they recognized, they understood what Jesus was talking about here. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because they, they ask him all these questions, who are you? And, you know, like, they're playing hard to get. But I think they understood, and they were trying to trap him, but they just didn't like it. Yeah. Because you can understand, you can know the truth, and you can not accept it. Because what's, what's like, I've never had this conversation with an atheist, but I know that this happens. A question that you can propose to someone that doesn't that, that doesn't believe that God exists is like, well, here's a question I want to propose to you. If God revealed himself, and if it was the truth, if, if, if you knew that this is the truth, would you believe? And there's probably some out there that says, if it was true, no. I don't want to believe it. And there are people that would want to remain in the darkness. They don't want to see the light. They don't want to know the truth because I guess they can't handle it. It hurt when you stepped on my toes, Jesus. Now I'm going to throw stones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I suppose that does it for, for this chapter. Uh, screw it. There's no need for transition there. Uh, as always, you can find our, our socials, our uh, email address and whatnot in the comments, and you can get into contact with us uh, through those methods. Uh, we're going to have to stop having these ridiculous outros that consist of me saying a whole lot of nothing. So I'm just going to go off that. Well, the past couple episodes you haven't done that. You've, you've, you've referred stuff in the show notes. Well, I never really know exactly how to end an episode. Because at the end of the day, all I need to reference is... That awkward moment of the day. Yeah. Hey, there's uh, there's social links and there's an email link and like that's it. Like the outro is so short and like I listen to a lot of podcasts that have like these long flowery outros. And I almost feel like we need to do that, but we don't. There's not that much to talk about. So. Mason will agree with me. The the two hardest parts with a sermon is starting one and starting ending, one and ending it. it. That's how I do. I hate that part of an essay. I hate that part of anything. Yeah, I, the the middle of the sandwich. I can I can do that, but the beginning and the end. Good Lord, help me. So, well, we have reached the end. So Tanner, will you bless us with the two words? Peace out.